Jesus was asked about to, to judge in a dispute about an inheritance between uh, uh, two folks. And Jesus responds with this teaching. Beginning in verse 16, he told them a parable saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This week as I was doing my morning devotion and, and had this sermon on my mind as I was preparing, um, I, this year I'm using Spurgeon's morning and evening readings. And uh, for the, the evening of April 26, he wrote something that I thought just rung the bell perfectly for where we are as a people. And so a little unusual, but I want to read a pretty good little chunk of that of that, uh, of that word to you this morning. This is what he wrote for, for the April 26 devotion. He's talking about disciples in the early first church, how the disciples were martyred and, and oftentimes gave their very life in persecution for the church. And he writes these words. He says, we die daily, said the apostle. That was the life of the early Christians. They went everywhere with their lives in their hands. We are not in this day called to pass through the same fearful persecutions. If we were, the Lord would give us grace to bear the test. But the tests of Christian life at the present moment, though outwardly not so terrible, are yet more likely to overcome us than even those of the fiery age. We have to bear the sneer of the world. This is little. It's blandishments, it's soft words, it's oily speeches, it's fawning, it's hypocrisy are far worse. Our danger is lest we grow rich and become proud, lest we grow our, give ourselves up to the fashions of this present evil world and lose our faith. Or if wealth not be the trial, worldly care is quite as mischievous. Here's the sentence that caught me. If we cannot be torn in pieces by the roaring lion, if we may be hugged to death by the bear, the devil cares little, which it is, so long as he destroys our love for Christ and our confidence in him. I fear, I fear me that the Christian church is far more likely to lose her integrity in these soft and silken days than in those rougher times. We must be awake now, for we traverse the enchanted ground and are most likely to fall asleep to our own undoing unless our faith in Jesus be a reality and our love to Jesus a vehement flame. I read those words, and I, they were written many, many years ago, during the Victorian era of England. 
And yet they speak very, uh, I think, appropriately for us today. Indeed, Satan doesn't care how he destroys us, only that it is accomplished. And I do fear many Christians today are being led astray, not by the threats of worldly violence, not by the threats of enforcement, of of keeping your, your words silent and, and, your, and your devotion to the Lord under wraps, but, but by the poisonous, sweet aroma of worldly wealth. As we consider this parable, we'll consider what is true treasure. This teaching comes in the context of being asked to make a judgment on the inheritance dispute. Now, if any of you have a family, and all of you do, amen, you know family can get a little crazy when it comes to money. Can I get an amen to that? Oh, then y'all don't know about this. All right, let me tell you something. Those uncles, aunts, and cousins, and sisters, and brothers of yours that you love so dearly, put a little money in the mix, and they can lose their mind. That's been true of every generation from the fall of man till today. So somebody asked Jesus to, to make a judgment in a dispute that they didn't think he had, they had gotten the inheritance uh, fairly. And instead of responding to that particular judgment, he follows with this parable. And in following the parable, he gives a longer teaching on the, on the truth that our lives do not consist of our possessions and that the abundance is not, that abundance of the things of this world are not always blessings. What you truly treasure is not testified by what you say. What you truly treasure is testified by what you chase by what you sacrifice for, and ultimately by what you worship. So from this passage, I want us to see these three truths. Number one, we must rightly recognize ownership. That's the foundational truth. If you get that one wrong, everything else that follows you will also get wrong. We must recognize ownership. Number two, we must value eternal What catches our attention, what attracts our eye is often the temporary, the temporal, the things that will not last into eternity. But what what we, we must value, what we must chase after is the eternal, not the temporary. And then lastly, knowing those two things, getting ownership right and what has eternal value right, seek what has true, what is true treasure. So let's begin with ownership. In fact, I, I see this as one of the, the, I said, foundational to understanding this passage. Recognize ownership. Ownership assumes rights. Ownership assumes rights. So when you own something, you have the right and the authority to control it. Now, this is true for property, it's true of objects, it's true of your work product, your home. If you own your home today, you have authority who can come in and who, can, who, who can't come in. You can say that, that, that folks cannot enter your property, and if you own it, then that is your right to do so. If you own an object, a car, or, or some physical thing, then you have ownership of that. You have the authority of where it goes, who can use it, who cannot use it, even your work product. It's why we spend so much time time in our law system with copyright because we understand that if you own it, you created it, you have, the, you have the authority to decide how it's used, when it's used, and who gets the, the benefit from its use. Jesus tells this parable of a rich man, and, he talks, and, he, and when he tells the story of this rich man and this man who is successful in, in, in growing bigger crops and greater crops and growing in wealth, Jesus tells this parable, and he talks about the the possessions that are under his control. And listen to the way 
Jesus presents the rich man's perspective about his things. The man says in verse 17, he talks about my crops. In verse 18, he talks about my barns and later my grain and later my goods. And then in verse 19, it gets even more intense. He says, my soul. And then later in verse 19, he even talks about eating, drinking, and being merry. And I would put that in the context of his future, assuming that he had authority and control over his future. There is an arrogance here that grows exponentially. First, the man assumes control over the physical things he has. And, and by the way, you might, you might be sympathetic to this thinking, for who among us doesn't speak about my car, my house, my things? But notice how it progresses. So then the man assumes control over his spiritual life. He says, my soul, as if he had any authority over that. And then finally, the man assumes control and knowledge of what his future holds. He says, I've got enough stuff to last me for many years. There's not a soul in this room that has any clue how many years you have left. You may live to a ripe old age of 120. Today may be the day that God calls you home. You have no clue. Neither do I. To all of these assumptions, Jesus recognizes it as foolish. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, Jesus says, you fool. Now, by the way, when God calls you a fool, it's never to be mean. It is always a right description of who he's speaking to. When Jesus calls you a fool, you are, in fact, a fool. Here's the point. You own nothing. Write that one down. Remember that one. You own nothing. Man may plant seeds for crops, but man cannot make those seeds germinate. Man didn't create the seeds themselves. He can't even cause the rain to fall to make the seeds grow. Man may accumulate things like barns and storage buildings. We've got storage buildings, don't we, friends? We've got places where we accumulate stuff. But we, didn't, we did not accumulate without the permission and the blessing of God. And by the way, we, all the things that we have today, we cannot keep them from deterioration. We not, cannot keep them from the destruction of, of natural disaster. We, we cannot push back the floodwaters. We can't make the tornadoes stop blowing. We can't keep the hurricanes off the, 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 the coast. We have no control over those things. Man may enjoy success. It may be, dear friends, that whatever your pursuits are today, God blesses that, and you prosper in whatever it is that you are doing. But the truth of it is you cannot ha make it happen. There are many who will work just as hard and try just as hard who will not know success. And even in your success, we are always one disaster, one physical ailment, one tragedy away from it all going away. Man has no part in creating his soul or authority over his future. We own nothing. Now, here's the contrast. The fool looks at what he has, and he says, I own it. I have authority on it, over it. The one who knows the Lord looks. The saint says to himself, thank you, God, for your gracious provisions. Thank you for providing well for me. 
One of the one of the starkest contra- one of the smart, starkest uh, illustrations we see of this is in the Old Testament, when when Israel in, in, um, possessed the Promised Land which God gave them, there were all kinds of rules about they could not sell the property outside of the of the family lineage, and there were all kinds of rules about um, how how uh, how descendants came and how God provided for descendants of a family name even if the father died without having children, and all of those rules were were not just to to accumulate wealth and keep wealth, they were rules to testify that Israel didn't really own the land. They were were living in the land. They they possessed the land, but they didn't own the land. It was owned by God. Friends, you got to get ownership right. Ownership assumes right. Who has rights over your life and your things? It's not ultimately you. It's the Lord. It's not your barns. It's not your crops. It's not your soul. It's not your future. All is the Lord. See, here's the truth. We possess, but we do not own. The fool assumes possession equals ownership and therefore authority. The saint recognizes that God in grace has provided everything, and thus he alone has authority over all things. In the first chapter of the book of Job, the Bible tells us of Job, the man who, by the way, The the testimony about him began with a man who was very wealthy and very successful. He had a large family. He was wealthy in the things of the world. And if you know the story of Job, within that first chapter, he loses all of his wealth. He loses almost the entirety of his family, everybody but his wife. And even his health is taken away. And he is reduced to sitting in a pit, scraping at his sores and boils. And do you know what Job's response to that was? In verse 21 of the first chapter, he says, Naked I came in from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now that is a testimony of a man who understood who owned his health, who owned his life, who owned the wealth. It wasn't Job. He possessed things, but he did not own things. And so it was God's ownership, therefore God's right, both to give and to take away. By God's grace, you, may, you might possess many good things. You might possess physical things. You might possess a body today that is healthy. You might possess an intellectual ability that is great. You may have tremendous family relations that are, are, that are vast. You may be successful right now in your career. That's good, and those are blessings. But you must always be mindful that possession of these things does not equal ownership of these things. God has authority over all things. Some Somebody say amen. God has authority over the winds and the waves. He has authority over the breath in your lungs. That heart that is beating in your chest is doing so by the will of God. You possess a body. You possess things. But you're not the owner of those things. The fool's arrogance caused him to look to his wealth and success at his, as his own making and for his own pleasure. But the saint looks to wealth and success as the gift of the Lord and for the glory of the Lord. Dear friends, if you don't get the ownership question right, nothing else will matter. Nothing else will matter. 
But if you do get the ownership question right, then you will move toward an understanding of what has real value. And the teaching here that Jesus is pushing is that we ought to value the eternal. We ought to value the eternal. Now, there is something about temporary wealth that is dangerous, and that is that temporary wealth can give us a false sense of safety and security. There's a deception that comes with wealth that's been present since the fall of man, and that is that with enough wealth, it'll provide true and lasting security. Now, we all live in this world, whether we understand it or not. You think, you know, if I just had enough money that I didn't have to balance my checkbook, you know what I mean? You have so much that you don't have to worry about whether or not you have something left in your checkbook. Then then it would be so wonderful because then I could just buy whatever I needed and never stress about running out of grocery money or or running out of miscellaneous money or anything like that. And then you think, you know, if I, if I just had enough money that I could just purchase everything outright, I could just buy the house, buy the cars, and fix whatever needed, then I would truly be secure. I would surely be at peace because I would have enough and I would all be well. As I was preparing to preach, I was thinking that that the the more common struggle in this idea of thinking that temporary wealth gives false security would be the the, the idea that if we just had a little bit more, then we would be okay. But the more I thought about this, the more I came to think that that if... um, the, 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 the more difficult struggle is the belief that if you have so much wealth that the worries of the world and of eternity no longer apply to you. We live in a day when even amongst church people, now listen, before I say what I'm about to say, I know I'm stirring the pot, so just know I'm stirring your neighbor's pot too, okay? Okay. So what I'm about to say is I think where we are is we're not struggling where the, what we might say where people of meager means say if I just had a little bit more, I would be okay. I think where we struggle more is like the rich man says in this parable, I've got so much that I'm good no matter what the Lord says. And this is why I think that is true. We live in a day presently where even amongst church people, That means people who have professed a love for the Lord and a recognition of the glory of God, where so many things, even in our lives, take precedent over the gathering of the church for the preaching of the gospel and the worship of Jesus. What do I mean by that? I've often said that church folks go to church these days when there's nothing else better for them to do. So we go to church unless we're on vacation. And we go to vacation more than anybody, folks, I know. Let me tell you, as a pastor planning events, we have to plan events around school holidays because we know when there's a school holiday, you'll be gone. You're gone. The beach, the mountain. And I know that when you're gone, you're not chasing after Jesus in worship service. You're on the beach, you're in the mountains, you're doing vacation. Vacations take precedent over preaching the gospel and worship. Travel balls, travel sports, 
Listen, all of our kids have played those events, and we've gone down to a lot of events and spent all day Friday and all day Saturday. And when we pack up on Saturday to come home to come to church, we leave a bunch of church folks there that have already got their hotel rooms and have not thought once about skipping the worship the next morning because they're too busy chasing after an event that won't even be remembered in two weeks. Stirred your pot yet? I'm not done. So you say, well, I don't care about vacations and my kids don't do sports. Fine. Work. Some of you, you'll choose work over the preaching of the gospel and the worship of Jesus. You got too much to do on Monday or you didn't finish what you had to do up on Friday, and so you're too tired on Sunday. And if that didn't catch you, then it's just general hobbies. You're in the woods hunting, chasing after a deer. You're on the lake chasing after a fish. Now, these things are not the pursuits of those struggling to provide enough for their families to eat. You hear me? All of those things are not the things of those who cannot afford to put groceries on their table. These are the pursuits of those who are inventing ways to spend the abundance that God has provided for them. You're building bigger barns. You're saying to yourself, I've got more than enough. It is now time for me to eat, to drink, and be merry. While the foolish man was rejoicing in the pleasure of his wealth, his soul was demanded of him. And instantly the, the things that were stored up in his barn became worthless. Dear friends, there is coming a day when the things of eternity will make the pleasures of this world worthless. And in that day, what security will your present pursuits of pleasure provide? I told you I was going to stir the pot, didn't I? You see, friends, nothing in this world will last. I run every morning, and as I run, I use that time to pray. And one of the prayer disciplines that has just been part of my life for a long time, and since I'm running through the neighborhoods, it's just a natural connection, is that um, landmarks are a reminder for me to pray for, for specific things. And generally, when I run by someone's home that I know, it's an opportunity for me to pray for them. So if you need special prayer, you need to figure out for me a way to run by your house every morning. Some of you get prayed a lot for because I run by your house almost every day. Now, for a while, my prayer for that has been, you know, for God to provide and, and, and maybe a particular need that I knew of those families. But I want to tell you how the Lord has been directing my prayer in the last month or so. God has been changing my heart about praying. And it's not just for those that I pray for on my route, but even for you, is that God would illuminate our hearts to see what has real value and what is worthless. And in part, that flows from a reality that I'm understanding that so many of us are chasing things that are worthless or even worse, that are wicked. And you know, when something's dim and dark, you can't really see what you've got a hold of. You might think that something that is rotten and nasty is okay because you can't see how nasty it is. But if you put the light on it and you see what it is for what it is, then you will reject it. So I've just been praying that God would, would break open the light of his glory to reveal truth of what has real value and what has no value. 
The first half of verse 20 is the most condemning, I think. In verse 20, it says, But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. In other words, all that you have spent your life in is worthless now because now you're standing before the Lord in judgment. The man had placed his hope in the temporary, but when confronted with eternity, he had nothing. The question that the second half of verse 20 is intended to be jarring. Now remember, this is in response to a question about inheritance. And Jesus says, your soul is required of you. Now, who will own what you have prepared? That second half question is not intended to offend, but rather to awaken us to the true value of the things of this world. Here's the truth. Everything of this world that you have or will ever accumulate will be owned or discarded by another someday. Nothing of this world can be kept, and nothing of this world will last. Like that loose sand on the, on the beach, oh, you can gather it in your hands, and you can hold some of it for a while, but you can't keep it. Wind blows it out. It leaks through your fingers, and as soon as you let go, it's gone. Dear friends, hold loosely to what you cannot keep and tightly to the things of God which you cannot lose. One last thing. Seek true treasure. So look at the very last thing that Jesus says. So it's said in a negative sense, but I think we can understand the positive encouragement here. So he says in verse, uh, verse 21, So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and not rich toward God. I mean, I think the admonition there, the teaching there is, don't lay up treasures for yourself that you can't keep, but chase after the things that make you rich toward God. So the question has to be, how do you become rich toward God? And, and I would simply say, you chase after those things that last forever. So if you do not chase after the temporary, which you cannot keep and will eventually be worthless, owned by someone else or thrown away by someone else, chase after the things of God. God is eternal. All the things of God are eternal. If you are rich toward God, you are accumulating for yourself riches that are eternal. And I would suggest to you at least three things that I know last forever. The first is your relationship with God. And this may seem so simplistic, it doesn't need to be said, but I think it does. Being rich toward God begins with knowing God, not knowing about God, knowing, not knowing things about God, but knowing God, personally knowing God. And you cannot know God apart from salvation in Jesus. Jesus even said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul. Salvation through Jesus makes you a child of the king and an heir of the kingdom of God. In heaven there will be no good thing withheld from God's beloved. 
Will not the glory of heaven make whatever suffering you know in this world seem insignificant and small? Will not the abundance of heaven make whatever sacrifice you give this side of of heaven seem insignificant and small? Do not let the trinkets of this world lure you away from the true treasure of knowing Jesus. Paul said, more than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish or trash in order that I may gain Christ. What lasts forever, dear friends, if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, it is written there by the blood of Jesus and it is written there forever by the power of Jesus. There's no one who can erase that name. And for eternity, unto eternity, unto eternity, you will not only know but be known by God. It is forever and ever. It is a true treasure, and it cannot be lost, deteriorated, or taken away. Know God personally. Relationship with God, secondly, connected to the first advancement of God's kingdom. Paul wrote in the first chapter of Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me and I do not know which to choose. If you know Jesus today, and I hope you do, then your calling, this isn't for professionals, this isn't for highly trained, your calling, if you know Jesus today, is to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them all that Jesus commanded. And here's what I know to be true. When you participate in leading someone to Jesus, you change eternity. Because like your salvation, when someone else comes to know Jesus, their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and that transforms eternity. Jesus said that all that the Father gives him will not be lost. He said in John chapter 6, and this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. In other words, when you bring somebody to Jesus, that is a forever, forever. That's a kingdom that once built does not deteriorate or back down. Now here's the truth. The church can busy itself with many things. We can be a busy church doing good works. We can be a busy church helping uh, 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 with many helpful uh, um, service to our community and our world, and we can feel like we're doing wonderful things because we're busy. But the only fruit of the church's labor that will last is the building up of God's kingdom. And I mean by that bringing lost people to know Jesus. Somebody say amen. There's coming a day when this building will stand no more. That's okay. And there's coming a day when not a single one of us will be remembered. That's okay. There'll be a, a day when nobody will remember any of the labors or the work that we did for the work of the kingdom in, in the context of Central Baptist Church, and that's okay. But there will never be a day when a soul who is brought to Jesus in salvation will ever be lost by Jesus. There will never be a day when somebody who came to know the Lord will be forgotten by God. Spend time knowing God in a personal relationship and building up the kingdom of God those things never, ever go away. And then there's one other thing. We don't think about this being eternal, but it is. And that is the knowledge of God's Word. The prophet Isaiah 
said, God said through the prophet Isaiah, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Friends, the word of God lasts forever. The word of God is forever true. When you study God's word, that labor, oh, I love this, is never wasted. When you come to understand part of the character and nature of God through the testimony of his word, that knowledge never passes away. We live in a unique day, unlike almost any other era of history, in that with the advancement of a basically universal education, we become a knowledge-based society and an economy. It used to be what can you do. Now today, it is what do you know. But here's the truth. And there's coming a day when all the knowledge of this world will pass away. Some of y'all in this room can already testify to that. How many of you know how to work a rotary dial telephone? You know how much that's worth today? Nothing. How many of you know how to use a slide rule? You know how much that's worth today? Nothing. All the things of this world, all the knowledge of this world is passing away. That is but the word of God. First Peter writes, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord abides forever. And the beauty of that truth is, listen, I hope you were in Sunday school this morning. And as you are learning the word of God in Sunday school this morning, you will enjoy that truth into eternity forever. Isn't that amazing? I hope you're studying the word this morning and this week as you are getting up and as you're going to bed. You're studying the word this morning. That truth, that wisdom, that knowledge will last forever. In fact, in the glory of the Lord all in heaven, all we will do is no more and more. But the word of God remains forever. My great-granddad was, for his day, a very successful farmer. And somewhere about 1890, somewhere just before the 1900, 1901, he built a new house. Now, they had been living in a log cabin that had been constructed when they settled the land. The, the farm that he had was part of some of the early land grants in South Georgia. So he had been a successful farmer, and so he built a home right across the street from the log cabin. And now when I knew it, it was just a simple, modest farmhouse. But for its day, it was a very grand house. Not only did it have three bedrooms, it had a, a sitting parlor, it had a formal dining room that was uncommon for its day. Uh, it had an indoor well, which is a pretty big deal for its day. Um, but it even had just some things that were just things nice to have and some of the decorative things on the porch that were not, were not needed. They were just there to, because he had the money and he could do it. That home served him, and he raised his family in that home. He had a, a large family, 
And then when he died, my grandmother, his daughter, and my grandfather uh, possessed that home and, and that farm and raised their family there. And so as I was growing up, when we would go to South Georgia, that's the house we would go to. And uh, I, now all of my days growing up, that farmhouse, because my granddad was a widower for most of my days, was not kept in the best of shape. And it was beginning to deteriorate, but you can understand a, a house that's, that was approaching 100 years at the time I was growing up just showed some signs of age. It never would boast things like air conditioning or, uh, or, uh, or satellite TV or anything like that, but it did have running water eventually, and it had air conditioning and those sort of things. But when my grandfather died, and he had not been living in the house for about two years at the point of his death, we all knew as a family that, that was, there was no one else who was going to live in the home. And so the process began to clean out those, those pieces of furniture that were special to the family and then dispose of everything else. Had a friend at the time who owned a, had a dump truck, big, big dump truck, and let me borrow that dump truck. And we, I, I got it and we backed it up and it, the back of that dump truck fit perfectly just about an inch right over the front porch. We were able to back it right up to the front door. And after the family had come and gathered up all the furniture that we wanted, all that was left was to dispose of everything else. Some of it furniture that just wasn't special or significant and just everything else in the house. And you know, the thing about it is, this is a house that had been sitting there almost a hundred years. It had held the treasures of over two, three generations of family. It had been at one time a envious place to live in. But I, it, it struck me pretty significant. It only took about an hour, hour and a half to, to divest that home of everything of its contents into a dump truck. We drove that dump truck over to the landfill in Cockwood County and in about an hour and a half, it took us longer to drive over to the landfill than it did to dump it. All of that stuff was gone. And I got a clear view of the future of my things too. That someday, those things that I've treasured, that I've stored, that I've put up in my home and looked at with great admiration, someday my kids, maybe my grandkids, maybe my great-grandkids are gonna load those things up in a dumpster and throw them away. Now that can hurt your feelings, can it? But what I hope it does for you is draw your attention away from the temporary and to the things that have real value in that home that we cleaned out. In fact, it no longer stands today, but in my memory right now, I remember well at night, my granddad getting on his knees on that old hard, heart pine, tongue and groove floor and praying and reading his word, the Bible. Don't you know that had an impact upon me? That last, that investment of his, that spiritual teaching in my life last, I have, I have Bibles from my grandmother who lived in that home and reading in that, that Bible, her notes and some of the testimonies there is precious and that last. Here's the point, friends. You're chasing after something. All of us are chasing after something. Some of you are chasing after things that will not last. They're destined for the dumpster, for the landfill, to be burned up on the judgment day of God. And the call here out of this parable is chase after what has true value. What lasts past this world to be rich toward God. That begins with knowing him personally. That develops into advancing his kingdom, calling others to know him personally. 
pouring your heart into the Word of God, that you might be rich toward God.